and welcome to Iris for Sunday, January 8th, 2023. My name is Trevor, and I will be reading you the Sioux City Journal for today. Let's take a look at the five-day weather forecast to see what's in store weather-wise. Today, it'll be not as cold with plenty of sunshine, with winds about 6 to 12 miles per hour and a high of 35 degrees. Tonight, it'll be mainly clear and not as cold later in the afternoon. Winds again 6 to 12 miles per hour and a low of 22 degrees. Monday, rather cloudy, high of 38 and a low of 17 degrees. Tuesday, mainly cloudy, with winds about 4 to 8 miles per hour, high of 37 and a low of 25. Wednesday, intervals of clouds and sunshine, high of 40 and a low of 28. Thursday, cloudy, cooler, breezy in the afternoon, high of 32 and a low of 15 degrees. All right, let's now look to the front page of today's paper. First, let's look at the bottom at the journal, the mini editorial, and this comes from the journal editorial board, and they write, The Iowa legislator begins the 2023 session Monday, hopefully less chaotic than in recent days than in the U.S. House of Representatives. Again, that is from the journal editorial board. Um, we'll now turn to the front page, which is the special journal report about a deputy-involved shooting about this time last year in Sergeant Bluff, and it kind of looks at mental health and um, the interaction of trying to get mental health for someone who had intentions of dying by suicide by cop. So special journal report about this series. Carol Meredith spent all day January 12th trying to convince her son, Michael Meredith, to seek help. Having gone without sleep for five days and showing signs of going through withdrawal from alcohol, Michael had been hallucinating, imagining a couple breaking into his house and later telling him to travel to Pennsylvania, then seeing caterpillars crawling on his ceiling. Michael continually refused medical treatment, telling Carol he'd commit suicide by police before allowing her to take him to the hospital. Carol called police to Michael's Sergeant Bluff home, hoping an officer would take Michael to the emergency room for an emergency hospitalization. But after speaking with Michael, the officer didn't believe he had a convincing case for hospitalization. Out of options, Carol and her brother, Sioux City lawyer David Gill, filed a petition for a court-ordered involuntary committal. But by the time it was filed late in the afternoon, they were told it wouldn't be reviewed until the following morning. Stopping by Michael's house on her way home, Carol urged him to stay inside that night after he refused to go home with her. About an hour later, police were calling emergency dispatchers to report shots had been fired in a Sergeant Bluff mobile home park. Headline, less than 10 seconds. Subheadline, what happened when Michael Meredith died? From Sergeant Bluff. Carol Meredith had left her TV off the night of January 12th. Her brother, David Gill, was working at his law office in downtown Sioux City when he saw a breaking news notification about a man being shot by police in Sergeant Bluff. There were no other details, but Gill's mind immediately filled with dread. Just a few hours earlier, he'd been in Sergeant Bluff trying to convince his nephew, Michael Meredith, Carol's son, to seek a mental health assessment after having hallucinations that had already led to two police calls to his home. He and Carol had even filed a court petition late that afternoon to have Michael involuntarily committed, but it wouldn't be reviewed by a judge until the following day. Knowing Michael had been threatening to do something that would force police to kill him, i.e. commit suicide by police, Gill thought immediately of Michael when he saw news of the shooting. Quote, I knew it was him, Gill said. 
Concerned, he drove to Sergeant Bluff to check on Michael and approaching from Interstate 29, saw the flashing emergency lights of police and emergency vehicles in Michael's neighborhood. He pulled into Michael's driveway and could see lights on inside the house. About to knock on the back door, Gil was approached by an officer who told him he couldn't enter. When Gil asked why, the officer said he couldn't tell him. Gil explained he needed to check on his nephew to see if he might be involved in a situation that was attracting all the police attention across the street. The officer wouldn't tell him more. Frustrated, Gil drove to Carol's house, told her about the news he'd heard and his encounter with police at Michael's house. The two, along with Michael's brother, Chris, went back to Michael's house. Again, a police officer told them they couldn't go inside despite their insistence. They needed to check if Michael was safe. By then, the three of us came to the conclusion we knew what we were going to hear, Gil said. They returned to Carol's home, then decided to go to the hospital to see if they could find Michael. They first went to the Mercy One Sulean Medical Center emergency room. Quote, I asked, is Michael Meredith here? And a nurse told me, quote, you'll have to talk to police, Chris said. Carol jumped in. Quote, I said, I'm his mother. I need to know if he's dead or alive. She told me we'd have to talk to the police about it. They went back to Carol's home. Gil received a text message from his wife informing him of a news report that the person who had been shot in Sergeant Bluff had died. Quote, shortly after I got the text, two state troopers appeared at the door, Gil said. Michael had been shot, one of them told the family, and had died at the hospital. Then came a visit from Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Special Agent Lynn Olison, who interviewed the family and discussed the early stages of the investigation into the shooting with them. The family was told that, minutes before the call from the mobile home resident was made, Michael had broken into a car nearby and sat in it, apparently waiting for someone to call police. When no officers came, he attempted to break into the mobile home, prompting the call that led to his fatal confrontation with officers. Carol shared with Olison all the events. Michael's strange behavior, his lack of sleep, his talk of suicide by police that had happened earlier in the day. She said the investigators realized the incident wasn't some random burglary interrupted by police. A DCI official said the investigation into Michael's death is completed and the agency had no further comment on it. The agency's final report is not a public document and will not be released, a lawyer for the Iowa Department of Public Safety said. Quote, I, know, I knew that night they realized it was a suicide, Carol said. He just, wanted, he just went out so they'd kill him. The next day at 1.45 p.m., Gill received a call from the clerk of court's office to confirm that a judge had approved his and Carol's petition for an involuntary committal for Michael earlier that morning. After more than a month of reviewing the shooting, then Woodbury County Attorney Patrick Jennings announced he had determined the shooting of Michael was justified. At the conclusion of Jennings' press conference, Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan released video recorded by the deputy's body cameras of the shooting. The first person dispatched to the mobile home park was Sergeant Bluff Police Officer Jeremy Mueller. A resident had called 911 to report that a white male was attempting to break into his house in his car. Mueller arrived at 5.47 p.m. Woodbury County Sheriff's Deputies Devin Grohagen and Eric Fay in the area for a training exercise also responded and arrived just after Mueller. As the three walked towards lot number five in the early evening darkness, the area illuminated by streetlights and their flashlights, the officers heard shouts from a female and a male saying, quote, you're on my porch. Grohagen, following, followed by Fay, ran to the trailer approaching between a parked car and a neighboring trailer. Mueller followed and approached from the driveway. Body cam video showed the deputies walk up to the trailer and Michael immediately rushed out at them, a four-way tire iron in his right hand. 
Grohagen backed up while Faye could be heard shouting, show us your hands, three times before Michael hit Faye in his left forearm with the tire iron. Faye then fired two shots as Grohagen discharged his taser. The encounter, the entire encounter lasted less than 10 seconds. Quote, it was not until Deputy Faye felt that his life was in danger that he discharged his firearm, Jennings said during the press conference. It was reasonable under the circumstances known to Deputy Faye for him to fear for his safety. One of the two shots fired by Faye entered Michael's chest on the right side and traveled to the left, puncturing his heart and coming to rest near his left armpit. Michael could not be heard saying a word during the encounter and never spoke after being shot. Faye, with a vehicle behind him and unable to retreat from Michael's rapid advance, was forced to make a split-second decision. Quote, in this case, unfortunately, the ending that happened was out of our control, Sheehan said when releasing the video. The incident wasn't going to end any other way. Michael's obituary appeared in the journal four days after his death. The first line read, Michael S. Meredith, 35, of Sergeant Bluff, died Wednesday, January 12th, 2022, from suicide after suffering many years with alcoholism. Carol wrote those words purposely to let the world know her son wasn't a criminal, some strung-out drug user who was shot while attacking cops, as people assumed in comments posted at the end of online media stories about the shooting. He was a troubled man dealing with addiction and mental illness. Quote, I feel he was being portrayed as someone who went over to burglarize a trailer court, she said. Quote, this is not some criminal activity. It was the result of some mental health crisis. His fiancée, Lauren Lanning, does not believe Michael intended to commit suicide that night. He was out of his mind and not living in reality, she said, a condition caused by the combination of insomnia and alcohol withdrawal that led to his hallucinations. Quote, coming at somebody with a tire iron, that definitely was not him, she said. I don't think he would have done what he did that night with all those factors. That wasn't him. Based on Michael's comments to her a few hours before death, Carol firmly believes his death was a suicide and could have been prevented. Michael needed help and Carol tried every possible every means possible that day to get it for him. Instead, she found perceived weaknesses in the protocol set up to help people like her son. But there should be a clear process what happens, Carol said. I know who to call. Think about the people who don't know what to do. Rather than quietly mourn, Michael's family chose to speak publicly about his issues and call for more responsiveness to people experiencing a mental health crisis. How can court officials make sure cases don't fall through the cracks like Michael's did. This is an example of a case that failed. Gill said, there were some deficits that occurred in the assistance we sought that day. We'd like people in institutions and agencies to think about whether there are better ways to handle these situations. No one will ever know what was going on inside Michael's mind during his final hours and whether he wanted his life to end. Regardless of his intentions that night, Michael forced officers to make a life or death decision. His family hopes for changes, making it easier for people like Michael, who are experiencing a mental health crisis, to end up in a hospital rather than a morgue, so that another officer isn't forced to be an involuntary participant in another person's suicide plan. All right, the next story is related to the journal's um, in-depth series of investigation about mental health committals. Next story Headline, Timing Can Mean Everything When Seeking Involuntary Commitments. Michael Meredith's family continues to struggle with the hypothetical question of what might have happened had they taken action to have him involuntarily committed to a hospital earlier in the day. If his mother, Carol Meredith, and Uncle David Gill had gone to the Woodbury County Courthouse at 2 p.m. 
would he still be alive? By filing for a committal an hour earlier on January 12th, the day Michael was hallucinating and threatening to commit suicide by police, would a judge's order have been issued yet that afternoon early enough for a sheriff's deputy to go to Michael's house and pick him up before he left on his suicide mission? Quote, I still think about that, Gill said. Instead, Gill Meredith went to the clerk of court's office at 3 p.m. and filed out, filled out the paperwork for an involuntary committal, turning it in 10 to 15 minutes before the office closed at 4.30. They were told the judge would review it the following morning. Gill said he doesn't remember the clerk telling them why it wouldn't be reviewed yet that afternoon. Less than two hours later, Michael was dead, shot by a Woodbury County Sheriff's deputy after rushing at him and striking him with a tire iron. Gill and Meredith found out firsthand a shortcoming of the involuntary commitment procedure. Quote, it's an option available only during business hours. If a person is having a mental health crisis, refused to voluntarily go to a hospital, and a police officer called to intervene doesn't take action to make an emergency hospitalization, the only option left is often is a court-ordered involuntary committal, which requires an application by two people to be filed in the clerk of court's office, then the judge's review and order. In Woodbury County, once it's approved in process, a clerk walks across the street to deliver the order to the sheriff's office, where it's processed and given to an officer in the transport division or a deputy who will then seek the individual to take him or her to a hospital. If that application is made late in the afternoon, as was the case with Michael Meredith, there are no guarantees the order will be processed and or acted upon yet that day. Some who deal with commitments on a regular basis say, Quote, it's really with the latecomers that there's gaps, said Brian Vakulskas, a Sioux City lawyer with experience with the committal process. Quote, I've tried to get a judge at 425 and not been able to find one. That shouldn't be the case, said District Judge Pat Tott, Chief Judge of the 3rd Judicial District, which includes Woodbury County. One judge on a rotating basis is designated to review all commitment applications, which are to take priority over other court filings, Tot said. If that judge leaves early for the day, he or she typically alerts the clerk's office, so if an application is filed, it can be sent to another judge. If a judge is still reviewing an application after 4.30, someone in the clerk's office will remain to process the judge's order. An application filed before the end of the business day at 4.30 should not sit overnight because no judge was available to review it. Quote, that would be by far the exception to the rule, Tot said. The idea is that those are processed as quickly and immediately as possible. Had Carol Meredith's request for a son's committal been reviewed yet that day, Todd wondered whether it would have been processed by the sheriff's office, which by law is required to receive commitment orders. That office, too, is closed by 4.30, and Todd said it can be hard to reach someone if a committal order is issued after office hours. Well, I know the topic has come up on a couple occasions. I know they're aware of the fact that we'd like to have someone get them regardless of the time, Tot said. Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan said someone in his office is always available to receive commitment orders. Deputies and jail officers are on duty at any given time and the clerk's office knows how to contact them if a committal order is signed after business hours. Orders have been delivered to the jail as late as 6 p.m., he said. Quote, we take the orders when they're brought over. If it's after hours, we take them, Sheehan said. Our office might be closed at 4.15 p.m., but we have deputies and jailers 24-7, or reachable 24-7. Sheriff Sergeant Blake Stalaker, who oversees the four-person transport division task of seeking people who are subject of committal orders in addition to driving inmates to and from court appearances and transporting inmates to prison, said it's 
rare that an order comes in after 4.30, and the clerk's office typically notifies him when one is coming after the office is closed. Quote, they'll usually give me a heads up if they're processing something late, Stalaker said. We don't know about an order until we get it. If received after hours, when transport officers have left for the day, Sheehan said committal orders are given to a deputy to search for the individual, though deputies may be dispatched on other calls at the time and might not always be immediately available to seek the person who is the subject of the committal order. Quote, if it's, it's a, it is a priority, but it depends on the totality of the circumstances of the day, Sheehan said. We work as fast as we can. An involuntary committal is often a family's last resort to get emergency mental health treatment for a loved one refusing to seek help, and most people in need of assistance get it through other avenues before a family must take that step. Most individuals who receive emergency mental health care come to the emergency room voluntarily, be it by a private vehicle, in ambulance, or with police, said Kristen Yaneff, a behavioral health social worker at Unity Point St. Luke's in Sioux City. In Iowa, four hospitalization options exist when seeking treatment for someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. A voluntary mission to the hospital or mental health care facility, a 12-hour hold, a 40-hour emergency hospitalization, or involuntary court committal. When a person comes to the hospital voluntarily, he or she can leave at any time. Sometimes they just need medications or to be set up with outpatient services, Yanev said, but doctors can observe them and admit them to the hospital hospital if they're acutely psychotic, suicidal, manic, or a risk to themselves or others. Quote, just because a person has a mental illness, it's not illegal and it doesn't mean they're unsafe. There's a very fine line, Yanev said. We typically do err on the side of caution. Law enforcement officers also may take a person in crisis for emergency hospitalization. Iowa law says any peace officer who reasonably believes a person is mentally ill and poses a threat to him or herself or others can take that person into custody without a warrant and transport them to a hospital or mental health facility. State law allows doctors to hold that person at the hospital for 12 hours. If doctors believe the person needs extended care, but he or she doesn't want to stay at the hospital, they can seek a 48-hour hold from a judge. If it's after 4.30 p.m., doctors in Woodbury County can contact a judge or magistrate who is on call to request such a hold which goes into effect once the judge gives verbal approval. After 48 hours, the hold expires. The hospital can't hold a person against his or her will, but they can stay voluntarily, and many do, Yanev said. If they insist on leaving, a doctor will discharge them against medical advice. Quote, mentally ill people still have rights, Yanev said. Even if experiencing a mental health crisis, as an adult, you have the right to make care decisions. If the mental... If the medical staff believes the person should stay beyond 40 hours but doesn't want to, they might encourage the person's family to seek an involuntarily court-ordered committal, the same kind of committal Michael Meredith's family sought. Quote, it's very easy to get someone committed in Iowa, Vakulska said. But a drawback to the involuntarily committal process is that applications can be made only during business hours at the courthouse. If a person is having a crisis at night or on the weekend, the only option is to have the person and go to the hospital voluntarily or call 911 and seek an emergency hospitalization from police who can seek assistance from the Mobile Crisis Assessment Team, or MCAT, a group of mental health professionals on call around the clock to assist law enforcement officers encountering someone experiencing a mental health crisis. Calling the Sioux Rivers Crisis Center is another option. Some things are easier said than done, Todd said. There, the, there are options, they're just not ideal. 
Ideally, he said, a court system would be able to accommodate after-hours applications for involuntary committals, but to do so would mean extended office hours requiring either the hiring of additional personnel or overtime pay for existing staff. That's currently not feasible, Tot said, under the judicial system's budget as approved by the legislator. Quote, we try to do everything within our power and resources, he said. All right, we'll now return back to the front page of today's paper, where we look to the legislative session here in Iowa for the new year. Headline, Iowa Democrats plan to fight Republican priorities in upcoming legislative session from Des Moines. Iowa Democrats said they would push back against what they called the, quote, radical ideas of the Republican majority when the Iowa legislature convenes for the 2023 session on Monday. Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls of Coralville and House Minority Leader Jennifer Cornfrist of Windsor Heights laid out concerns they had about Republicans' goals in the upcoming session in a press conference on Friday. They held the press conference after the Iowa Capitol Press Association's Legislative Preview Forum was canceled because Republican legislative leaders and Governor Kim Reynolds declined to attend. Walls criticized the decision by Reynolds, House Speaker Pat Grassley, and Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver to not attend the forum. Quote, it is the violation of these lowercase d Democratic norms that show Iowa Republicans are in lockstep with the National Republicans in Washington, he said. A spokesperson for Whitver said in an email that the Senate leader spent time with media in interviews before the session. Quote, stories previewing the upcoming session with his commit comments appear in multiple outlets on a daily basis, Caleb Hunter, Whitver spokesperson said. Quote, Democrats' hyperbole is dem- demonstrably unfounded and wildly irresponsible, end quote. Democrats remain in the minority in the upcoming session, having lost seats in both the House and Senate in the 2022 election, with Republicans gaining a two-thirds supermajority in the Senate. Walls decried the renewed push from Republican legislators for a law that would give some parents the option to use a portion of their students' per-pupil state education funding to subsidize a private school education in the form of scholarships commonly called vouchers. Coey said the plan would defund our public schools and send public money to unaccountable private institutions. Last year's proposal made 10,000 taxpayer-funded scholarships available to families making up to 400% of the federal poverty line or children on an individualized education program, or IEP. This year, Confrist said Reynolds may propose a plan without an income cap. Quote, if there are no income limits on these school vouchers, which take public money and put it in private schools, that means that a millionaire family from Des Moines can send their kid to private school on the taxpayer dime, while schools in rural Iowa are crumbling because money has been taken away, she said. Reynolds has not unveiled her proposal for a private school tuition assistance program, but she campaigned heavily on the issue in 2022 and said it would be a top issue in the new session. Reynolds and Republicans say the measure would give parents more choices in education and provide opportunities for students who don't succeed in public school. Over the last six years, the Senate Republicans, along with Governor, along with the House and Governor Reynolds, have increased K-12 funding by half a billion dollars, Hunter said. Democrat leaders, Democratic leaders also raise alarms about Republican attempts to restrict abortion, although Republicans have said they do not plan to pass laws restricting abortion until a state Supreme Court case plays out. Reynolds has asked the Iowa Supreme Court to reinstate a law that would effectively ban most abortions once cardiac activity is detected, usually around the sixth week of pregnancy. 
That law allows exceptions for rape, incest, and medical emergencies. Republicans have not made clear their end goal now that states have far more freedom to restrict abortion up to a complete ban, but Walls and Confrist argue that they are aiming for a total ban. Quote, I think we're going to see legislation sooner than later that does ban abortion in the state of Iowa, and then we're going to have to have a real conversation on the floor of the House about who they're answering to and who they work for, Confrist said. Both Walls and Confrist said they hope to find areas of bipartisanship with the majority, and they would be involved in early conversations and drafting bills. Wall said he hopes Republicans and Democrats can find bipartisan solutions when it comes to workforce training and recruitment, protections for residents in mobile homes, and expanding housing, and changing cannabis laws. Quote, the problem is this majority has chosen to work exclusively with the, within the Republican caucus and to shut Democrats out completely, he said. All right, now returning back to the inside of today's paper, page A2. We look to our local U.S. representative, Randy Feenstra, and his re- reaction to the, um, the chaos and electing the new House Speaker for this session. Headline, Feenstra responds to House Speaker election from Hull, Iowa. For 15 rounds over the course of several days, Representative Randy Feenstra, Republican of Hull, cast a vote for Rep- Representative Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of House for the 118th session of Congress. It was the 15th round of voting late into Friday night that won the California Republican the Speakership. And once McCarthy had it secured, Feenstra put out a statement saying what the House GOP intends to do over the next year. Quote, we can now honor our commitment to America by defunding President Biden's army of 87,000 new IRS agents, securing our border, ending wasteful spending, and protecting our family farmers and producers, Feenstra said. The IRS line is in reference to 2021 figures from the U.S. Department of the Treasury that an $80 billion investment in the Internal Revenue Service could make it possible for the agency to hire 86,852 full-time employees over a 10-year span. Per CNN, just after being installed the Speaker of the House, McCarthy said, quote, I know the night is late, but when we come back, our very first bill will repeal the funding for 87,000 new IRS agents. You see, we believe government should be should be to help you, not go after you. Beanstra also said he was encouraged by the moves McCarthy made to prevent massive bills, like the recent $1.7 trillion government spending package that I opposed from being written behind closed doors and passed in haste. When asked by the Journal in November about what his top priorities would be for the incoming session, Feenstra mentioned inflation as well as the border. Feenstra wasn't the only Siouxland congressman with a statement out following McCarthy's win. Representative Mike Flood, Republican of Norfolk, Nebraska, praised the new House Speaker but was a shade less specific when talking about legislative goals. Quote, I look forward to working with Speaker McCarthy and our, all our fellow Republicans in the coming months to control spending, hold the Biden administration accountable, and deliver on our commitment to America, Flood said. Representative Adrian Smith, who serves Nebraska's 3rd District, said in a statement that McCarthy was the ideal candidate to preside as Republican Speaker of the House. Quote, there is no one more qualified to lead the House Republicans than Kevin. His hard work and clear vision earned us the majority, and his open-minded approach to leadership paved the way for an open and inclusive process for selecting a Speaker, Smith said. While McCarthy's speakership push was still deadlocked, South Dakota Republican Dusty Johnson said Republicans needed to resolve the matter because there was, quote, real work to do. Johnson then added, 
Quote, I believe out of all of this, we will be able to govern more effectively as a Republican conference, knowing each other much better than we did last year. All right, let's now turn to the local infrastructure news regarding the exciting topic of our wastewater treatment plant. Headline, Council to Discuss New Sewer Treatment Plant Agreement from Sioux City. The Sioux City Council is expected to discuss a new 25-year sewer treatment agreement with South Sioux City. The Council has already approved agreements of the same length with North Sioux City, Sergeant Bluff, and Dakota Dunes. South Sioux City is building its own $46.4 million wastewater treatment plant next to the Missouri River and north of the Tyson Fresh Meats Lagoons. However, South Sioux City will continue to take its residential sewer across the North River crossing, according to Tom Pingle, the city's utility director in charge of Sioux City's regional wastewater treatment plant. Pingle previously told the journal city officials expect to have all the sister cities under the new agreement before it expires. After five deferrals, the council voted unanimously in November 2019 to terminate the existing agreements. The termination notice becomes effective four years after receipt of the notice. The previous agreements with Sergeant Bluff and North Sioux City have been established 39 years ago, while the agreements with South Sioux City have been in place for 38 years. Dakota Dunes, a planned community that borders North Sioux City, entered into a sewer treatment agreement with Sioux City on December 3, 1990. That agreement was subsequently amended and restated on April 12, 1993, May 14, 2007, and October 3, 2016. The agreements had no sunset dates and automatically renewed unless other action was taken and didn't provide Sioux City with any remedy when flow limits are exceeded. On November 25, 2019, the city of Sioux City gave notice of termination to the sister cities. They received a letter signed by Mayor Bob Scott warning that the city may end the contracts that govern the amount of waste each community can send to Sioux City's regional wastewater treatment plant at 3100 South Lewis Boulevard and the rates each city pays. According to city documents, the new agreement with South Sioux City, like the agreements with the other sister cities, will ensure that the capacity at the Sioux City Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant doesn't get over-allocated and improvements several new provisions, including a fats, oils, and grease program, odor and corrosion control, monitoring requirements, and discharge limitations, a reopener clause, a user charge plan, and payment to the City of Sioux City. Historically, the sister city agreements have been used to define the hydraulic loading that each sister city can contribute to Sioux City. Establishing an allocation for each city allows them to view it as a benchmark they can compare their historical wastewater generation to and evaluate their own capacity for growth, the document state. The new agreements will help the sister cities plan for economic growth as well as attract business and residents to the region. All right, let's now turn to page A7, which is the week in Iowa, a collection of stories um, across the state this last week. Headline, Brenna Bird takes AG's office. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Bird began her term by signing in onto anti-Biden lawsuits and examining the office's victim services division during her first day on Tuesday. Bird ousted Democrat Tom Miller in November's election campaigning on a message of challenging President Joe Biden's administration in court and backing law enforcement. She signed on two lawsuits challenging Biden's student debt forgiveness plan, vaccine mandates, and a provision in the American Rescue Plan that bars states from using federal aid to cut taxes. 
Headline, Legislators Eye Property Taxes. With the Iowa Legislative Session beginning Monday, a top priority for Iowa lawmakers will be reforming and lowering property taxes. Republican leaders have not made specific proposals, but they hope they can pass legislation that lowers Iowans' property tax burdens. Property taxes are the primary funding mechanism for local governments' budgets and fund things like police, libraries, and parks. Democrats, who are in the minority, said they would be open to looking at property taxes, but they want to ensure that county and local services remain well-funded. Odds and Ends Iowa Representatives Back McCarthy Iowa's incoming U.S. House delegation comprised of four Republicans, all back Republican Representative McCarthy of California, during a disjointed nomination process for Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. McCarthy, the previous minority leader, did not have enough votes on the first 13 votes for Speaker as of Friday, as a faction of conservative House Republicans refused to vote for him. Headline, Legislator to Rethink Higher Education Iowa House Republicans are again floating a proposal that would see higher education funding tied to the number of students in in in-demand fields at Iowa's public universities. House Republicans passed a proposal last year that would give scholarships and incentives for students to stay and work in high-demand fields. Headline, COVID Cases Tick Up Iowa reported 2,246 new COVID-19 cases in the week ending Wednesday, a 5% increase from the previous week. The number of people hospitalized with the virus was 248, up from 242 the previous week. Headline, Roby Smith takes over as treasurer. Republican Iowa Treasurer Roby Smith, who assumed office this week, said he wants to do, quote, a deep dive into the programs administered by the office and look for areas of improvement. Smith defeated 40-year incumbent Democrat Michael Fitzgerald in the November election. He said he wants to set up a fund that will allow Iowans to save money tax-free for a down payment on a home. In the news, more legislative stuff. Headline, School Choice Proposal to Surface. A system of directing public school tax dollars to tuition assistance for private schools will be the top issue in the upcoming legislative session as Republicans push to enact a policy that stalled in the House last year. While neither the chamber leaders nor Governor Kim Reynolds have unveiled this specific plan, House Speaker Pat Grassley said he wants to take a holistic approach to funding for both public and private schools in the upcoming session. Democrats and many education leaders oppose the idea, saying it takes money out of already struggling public schools and would gut rural schools. Headline, Lawmakers to Wait on Abortion Measures Iowa Republicans plan to wait on the outcome of a court case before deciding on new abortion legislation, as the state Supreme Court weighs a push from Republican Governor Kim Reynolds to reinstate the so-called fetal heartbeat bill, which would ban abortions except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Legislators say they won't pass any bills before the Supreme Court decides in that case, which will set the precedent for the extent to which lawmakers can restrict abortion in Iowa. All right, let's now turn to the opinion section or page A10 of today's paper. And this uh, opinion section is titled Starting a New Session. It looks at local Iowa House and Senate members uh, from North West Iowa and what their political priorities are. Northwest Iowa legislators list school choice, property tax reform, and stopping the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines as some of their top priorities as the annual session begins Monday in Des Moines. Seven of the region's representatives will begin their first session on January 8th.
Senator Rocky DeWitt, Senator Lynn Evans, Senator Kevin Owens, Representative J.D. Schulten, Representative Bob Henderson, Representative Zach Dix Deacon, and Representative Ken Carlson. Just one, Schulten is a Democratic legislator. The 2022 election cycle in Northwest Iowa was one marked by newly drawn districts and challenges to incumbents. In the case of the latter, Deacon obtained his seat by defeating Dennis Bush of Cherokee in the Republican primary. GOP Representative Skyler Wheeler Hull fended off a primary challenge from 22-year-old Kendall Zulstra, and Henderson took out former Representative Steve Hansen, who had more than 20 years of experience in the Iowa legislature. 14 of the 16 legislators representing districts in the journal's circulation area responded to journal reporters' questions to share their top two legislative priorities for the year. Below are their answers. Senator Rocky DeWitt, Republican of Lawton, District 1. Number one, property tax relief. The legislator stated that the intention is to freeze the rates, but the problem with that is that it has the potential to hamper counties in their budgeting process. I want to make sure that there is a balance so that counties are protected from any shortfall or unfunded mandates from the state side of the issue. Two, school choice. I believe there are valid points on both sides to change slash not change how funding is applied. I've been in meetings with both school districts in District 1, and they obviously have concerns. I know there will be lengthy committee discussions, and I need to withhold judgment until I see a finished product. Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican of Sioux Center, District Number 2. He was not able to respond by press time with his priorities. Senator Lynn Evans, Republican of Aurelia, District Number 3. Her two priorities are, number one, increasing access to mental health services. We are seeing more children and young families in our communities and schools that need access to these services. In many cases, the wait times to actually receive the care needed is measured in weeks <clears throat> and months. As a state, we need to do better and continue to make this a priority. Two, protecting the life of the unborn. I believe that life begins at conception that all life is precious. Now that the issue of abortion is back to the responsibility of states, Iowa needs to work to enact legislation that protects the life of the child. Senator Dave Rowley, Republican of Spirit Lake District Number 5. Number 1. Eminent being used as an option for carbon sequestration pipelines. While the Iowa Utility Boards has the authority to allow for the use of eminent domain, it must be balanced with the rights of property owners. It is reasonable to challenge the process and define terms such as public good and public utility and how these terms are being applied in the case of carbon pipelines. 2. Health and Human Services. In conversations I've had held with health care providers, there is a concern that the level of Medicaid reimbursement to our health services is inadequate. This reimbursement is key to maintaining our medical services in general, including our regional hospitals, dentistry, senior care centers, and mental health providers. Senator Jason Schultz, Republican Schweizig District 6. He also was not able to provide uh, responses by press time. Senator Kevin Alonso, Republican of Salix District Number 7. Number one, data privacy slash personal health freedom. Comprehensive legislation to prevent the loss of employment or other loss of rights for medical status, including vaccination status. Two, parental rights slash school choice legislation. Uh, this is number two priority. There wasn't any further detail on that. Next, Representative J.D. Scholten, Democrat of Sioux City District 1. Number one, education, making sure we fund public education before we dis even discuss out-of-state special interests like school vouchers. Number two, grow the economy. This is everything from making sure small businesses can compete to making sure we don't pass radical ideological policies, example abortion bans, 
that are unattractive to keeping attracting a skilled workforce. Representative Bob Henderson, Republican of Sioux City, District Number 2. Number 1 and 2, he says, Education Reform and Funding and Property Tax Review. These are certainly related because education funding has a direct impact on property taxes and perhaps some changes in the funding mechanisms and priorities for education, and I'm not just referring to funding, can have an impact on local property taxes, both rates and assessments. 45 years of working in various aspects of public education has acquainted me with the areas that may not be as well understood by many legislators that can lead to reform that will enhance education in the state and better control local taxes as well. Representative Tom Journey, Republican of Lamar's District 3. Number one, stopping a private for-profit company from using eminent domain to take people's land away from them. The CO2 pipeline is not a public utility, it is a byproduct of a manufacturing process. The legislators should block this pipeline. I have been very opposed to this from the beginning and I will not give it my support. Number two, increasing reimbursement for healthcare professionals for Title 19 services. Northwest Iowa is an underserved area, and this is compounding the problem of access to care. As an example, dentists have not had an increase in reimbursement over 20 years, and this is contributing to access to needed dental treatment. Representative Skylar Wheeler, Republican of Hull, District 4. Number one, school choice. This will provide every family the opportunity to get their child in the educational setting that best fits them. The state needs to empower parents to ensure their children can get the best education they can. There are countless studies that show that school choice makes education as a whole better, and states that have done this have not had a single public school close as a result. 2. Banning sex change surgeries. Protects our children and guards them against the mental and emotional toll that these procedures are taking on our kids. Children who struggle with the idea of being made in the wrong biological body should not be treated by being castrated or sterilized. An overwhelming amount of these cases sort themselves out as the kids get older. The state has a vested interest to protect the health and well-being of our children. Representative Zach Deacon, Republican of Granville District 5. Number 1. Abolishing abortion because it's murdering unborn children. 2. Stop the carbon capture pipeline. It's a money-making scheme disguised as a caring point about the environment. In all reality, it's just an attempt to take our land for someone else's profit. Republican Megan, Representative Megan Jones, Democrat of Sioux Rapids, District Number 6. Number 1. Adoptions. We set up a system a few years ago for adoption expenses to be charged through public defense attorneys. The infrastructure was in place to pay for legal fees for criminal defense. Now we can just use it for adoptions. We need to open it up so more families can use that program and make adoptions cheaper and easier. While many adoptions are already free, many are not. And no kid should be without family because of legal fees. 2. Reevaluate our property tax system. I get a lot of complaints about how high property taxes are, and that is not lost on me. However, much of this is decided on the county level. While we are very limited on the state level with what we can do here, but we need to inspect every avenue and figuring out what we can do to lower property taxes and make them more predictable. Representative John Wills, Republican of Spirit Lake District 10. Number one, school reform. It was a big issue in regard to parents and constituents wanting transparency, safety in schools, and the ability to choose where they send their children to school, and many other issues. Number two, tax reform. I've heard a lot about property tax reform and that being a big issue and one that will take some care when working on it as property taxes are a local tax that could affect our counties, cities, schools, and community colleges. Rep Representative Stephen Holt, Republican of Denison, District 12. 
Number one, school choice less education reform. Number two, protecting landowners from the use of eminent domain by the CO2 pipeline companies. Representative Ken Carson, Republican of Ottawa, District 13. Number one for him is learn as much as possible and quickly as possible about how it all works. Two, have as open a mind as possible all topics presented early on in the session. Representative Jacob Bossman, Republican of Sioux City, District 14. Number one, workforce shortage. The state must continue to do everything it can to remove employment barriers for Iowans. Well, we've already done a lot to expand access to affordable child care through grants, tax credits, and regulatory reforms. There is still a lot more that can be done. Number two, expand the workforce housing tax credit. Open up affordable housing stocks so that people can afford to relocate to Siouxland for jobs. All right, let's now turn to the sports section, or section B of today's paper, where we look to uh, boys uh, wrestling. Headline, West Sioux, K-P place fourth and fifth, respectively, at Invitational. Subheadline, Boyden Hole slash Rock Valley wins wrestling title at GTRA from Warden, Iowa. West Sioux finished fourth at its own Invitational Saturday behind three larger schools from South Dakota. West Central of Hartford, South Dakota won the meet with 298.5 points. Brookings, South Dakota placed second with 204, and Sioux Falls, Lincoln was third with 189 points. West Sioux, which totaled 158 points, had two individual championships. At 145 pounds, junior Zach Finzen, 21-4, edged Connor Jacobson of Ridgeview, 9-8. In the 285-pound finals, Junior Keegan McMillan, 20-3, won in a fall over Galvin Pischke of West Central at 2 minutes and 55 seconds. The Falcons, ranked 11th in Class 1A in the Iowa High School Athletic Association's most recent poll, also had two fourth-place finishers at the meet, Tyler Kennedy at 160 and Javier Mora at 170. Kingsley Pearson, ranked 18th in the IHSAA's Class 1A poll, Placed 5th at the West Sioux Invitational with 150 points. Panthers senior Carson Sejunsons won the individual title at 132 pounds. Sejunsons, kind of a difficult last name to pronounce, uh, 19-2 defeated Elliot Ellen Becker of Sioux Falls Lincoln, 11-4. Two KP wrestlers were placed 3rd, freshman Evan Jadoginski at 106 pounds and freshman Gavin Wig at 113 pounds. K-P's Taylor Orzjowski, Calvin Harvey, and Josh Harvey placed fourth at 138, 145, and 152, respectively. MOC Floyd Valley finished sixth at the meet with 130 points. At 152 points, Dutchman senior Cooper Huss lost in the title match by a fall at 1 minute and 46 seconds to Chandler Carta of West Central. MOC <clears throat> Floyd Valley's Carter Peterson finished second at 170 pounds, losing to Israel Cauldron of Brookings, 13-6. The Dutchman Sterling Hack and Kip Huss placed third at 160 and 183 pounds, respectively. Central Lion George Little Rock placed seventh with 124 pounds. Lion sophomore Levi Kramer, 7-1, won the title at 120 pounds over Turner Gordon, Sioux Falls Lincoln, in a 9-0 major decision. CLGLR's Evan Kruger and Trevor Deeren finished second at 195 pounds and 220 pounds, respectively. Kruger lost by fall at 3 minutes and 1 seconds to Caleb Lohr of Brookings 
and James Olsen Brookings won over Duran in a fall at 5 minutes and 26 seconds. The Lions, Reagan Hash, and Sam Christensen placed fourth at 120 and 285, respectively. Ridgeview placed eighth with 84 pounds, and Cherokee was ninth with 62 points. Cherokee's Gage Johnson and Carter Howitt placed fourth at 120 and 132 pounds, respectively. Boydenhole slash Rock Valley won the 10-team Grandeur Terrell, Ruth Valen, a Shire individual invitational on Saturday. In individual results, Boydenhole Rock Valley finished with 225 points ahead of second place Central Springs with 178. Three other journal circulation area teams complete, competed at the meet. Akron Westfield finished 7th with 111.5 points. Sibley O'Shaden was 9th with 70.5 points. And OABCIG was next with 68 points. Boydenhole Rock Valley crowned three individual champions. At 145 pounds, Nighthawks freshman Brock Mulder, 6-2, won the title over Dalton Tobin, North Union, at 18-6 in a fall at 49 seconds. At 160, senior Zach Struby, 13-3, won in a 6-2 decision over Rory Praszczak of Central Springs. Senior Jace Mulder, 14-3 won the 182-pound title over Caden Garner Central Springs in the fall at 1 minute and 27 seconds. Three Boydenhole Rock Valley <clears throat> wrestlers also placed second. Kevin Quijada lost at 6-1 to one decision to Ethan Zaug of West Bend Millard in the 195-pound finals. At 220 pounds, Brandon Bollinger of North Union won over Boydenhole Rock Valley's Regan Mason in a fall at 1 minute and in the 285 final, Michael Bach of Sibley O'Shaden, 22-2, Jr. won over the Nighthawks' Jesse Jerus Garcia in the fall at 1 minute 39 seconds. Three more Siouxland wrestlers won title Saturday, including two from Akron-Westfield. In the 113-pound first-place match, Akron-Westfield junior Kale Morrow, 20-1, defeated Caleb Sweden of GTRA, 10-3. At 126 pounds, Westerner junior Jaden Fredericks, 21-1, won by forfeit over Angel Gaska of Boydenhole Rock Valley. In the 138-pound first-place match, Sibley O'Shaden freshman Dawson Buyer, 20-4, won a 8-4 decision over Parker Dutzman of Esserville Lincoln Central. Storm Lake won two matches at the Sheldon Duels Saturday. The Tornadoes defeated Sheldon South O'Brien 43-42 and Sioux Central 57-24. Tracy Milroy Balaton prevailed over Sioux Central 72-12 and Sheldon South O'Brien 60-21. Sheldon South O'Brien defeated Sioux Central 54-18. Well, our time together is drawing soon to a close, so let's just do Dear Abby, recap the weather, and then we will say goodbye to each other. Headline, Grateful Family Continues to Honor a Man's Sacrifices. Dear Abby, My dad had a stroke. My siblings and I, there are three of us, needed someone to care for him since we all work full time. I asked my stepson, Miles, who is living in Tennessee, if he could help us out by moving to Washington State and caring for dad during the day. Miles was working nights. Given that dad needed 24-7 care, my siblings and I didn't want to put him into a nursing home. Within two weeks, Miles had given up his life in Tennessee and moved across the country to help. Because he was helping us, we didn't ask him to pay rent. His generosity saved us thousands of dollars in nursing home fees, and Dad was much happier living at home. 
Dad passed away earlier early this year, and my siblings and I are in the process of selling his house. Miles is still living with me in the house because I inherited Dad's two dogs. He takes care of the dogs and such while I'm gone for various reasons. He has been a huge help, and I still haven't asked him to pay rent, given his sacrifice to serve our needs during a time of crisis. The problem is, my sister thinks Miles should now pay rent until the home is sold. My brother and I disagree. My brother says that if it's fine with me, it's fine with him. I feel like, quote, I'm paying it forward for the help Miles gave not only to us, but our dad. He earns a minimal salary and pays for half the utilities and most of the food. Asking him for rent until we sell the house feels selfish to me, given that he unselfishly relinquished his previous life for my family. Am I wrong not asking him for rent? We expect to sell the house within six months or less. Signed, Needing Guidance in Washington. And Abby writes, Dear Needing, your stepson is selfless and generous. I do not think he should be expected to pay to live with you under these circumstances, so stand your ground. However, I do think that Miles should be given serious thought to finding a job that will pay him more than a quote minimal salary because in six months, once your father's house is sold, he'll need a roof over his head. Please encourage him to do so, and if he needs training to reaching his goals, encourage him to get it. Dear Abby, two good friends of mine lived together and had a, then had a falling out. There wasn't a big explosion, but simmering emotions eventually led to one to tell the other she no longer wanted to be friends. It has been a few years, and there has been no more mending of the relationship. They have had a lot of mutual friends, so they know we, they, they know they will still sometimes see each other. I'm about to have a party, and I've invited both of them. What's the rule etiquette here? Should I go out of my way to inform them both that the other is coming? I don't want to surprise them, but at the same time, I worry that telling them would be a little dramatic. They are both adults who can deal with it, I think. Signed, Nervous Hostess in Oregon. Abby writes, Dear Hostess, no rule of etiquette decrees that you must run your guest list by prospective guests. It isn't necessary to raise a subject with either of them. As you stated, these people are adults and should be able to handle themselves appropriately. Issue your invitations and enjoy your party. All right, let's quickly recap the weather as we say goodbye today. Again, today it'll be not as cold with plenty of sunshine to melt that snow and ice, thankfully. High of 35. Tonight it'll be mainly clear and not as cold late. Low of 22. Uh, Monday, rather cloudy. Winds 6 to 12 miles per hour. High of 38. Low of 17. Tuesday, mainly cloudy. Low of 37. High, low of 25. High of 37. Wednesday, intervals of clouds and sunshine. High of 40, low of 28, and Thursday, high of 32, and a low of 15 degrees. Well, that brings us to the end of Iris for Sunday, January 8th, 2023. My name is Trevor, and I've been pleased to bring you the Sioux City Journal. I, and that's all for now. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.